This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Radical Happiness, Moments of Collective Joy by Lynn Siegel. Why are we so obsessed by the pursuit of happiness? With new ways to measure contentment, we are told that we have a right to individual joy. But at what cost? In an age of increasing individualism, we have never been more alone and miserable. But what if the true nature of happiness can only be found in others? In Radical Happiness, leading feminist thinker Lynn Siegel argues that we have lost the art of radical happiness, the art of transformative, collective joy. She shows that it is only in the revolutionary potential of coming together that we can come to understand the powers of flourishing. Radical happiness is a passionate call for the rediscovery of the political and emotional joy that emerge when we learn to share our lives together. Radical Happiness, Moments of Collective Joy, by Lynn Siegel, out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Saving Capitalism is a new quasi-autobiographical documentary about the origins of contemporary political economic inequality from my guest today, Robert Reich. I certainly don't agree with the premise that capitalism ought to be saved, of course. But I do think that Reich, who as Secretary of Labor fought the Rubenite neoliberals who dominated the Clinton administration, is one of the smartest voices on the liberal left. And I think that it's important for the socialist left to have an ongoing dialogue with those smart voices on the liberal left as we share an enormous amount of common interest and vision in the fight against neoliberals and the conservative right. Anyhow, Saving Capitalism, which is available now on Netflix, was produced by Yael Bridge and Eden Wormfeld, directed by Jake Kornbluth, and co-directed and edited by Sari Gilman. A quick note before we get rolling. If you listen to this show, please support us. $5 a month is a huge help in helping us spend a lot of time putting together these two weekly episodes. You can do so, if you haven't already, at patreon.com slash the dig. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the dig. At the time of this recording, we just hit 666 monthly supporters. What an omen. Okay, here's the show. Secretary Reich, welcome to The Dig. Well, thank you. Your new film is about the rise of this just gigantic political and economic inequality that pervades the United States today. And there's a lot of stuff to talk about, but you trace it back in part to a reactionary business movement launched in part by something called the Powell Memo. What was the Powell Memo 
what was the whole context that it emerged in? And what was its impact? Uh, yeah, in the early 1970s, uh, the Chamber of Commerce of the United States asked a leading lawyer named Lewis Powell, who subsequently became a Supreme Court justice, uh, to write a memo to the business community about the increasing power of what were then consumer and environmental groups and labor groups uh, in Washington. Uh, and talking about how important it was for the business community to get very well organized. Uh, now, the irony, of course, is that consumer groups and environmental groups and labor groups, uh, their power was really very small relative to business, uh, certainly relative to what business is today. Uh, but the business uh, and the chamber thought that they were being attacked and thought they were being attacked unfairly and thought that uh, they needed to have a very powerful voice in Washington. And that was the beginning of all of the huge lobbying organizations, uh, the Business Roundtable, the extraordinary network of uh, of industries interlocking in Washington uh, that today basically run not just the Republican Party, but have a significant voice in the Democratic Party as well. Tell me a little bit more about this this context. This is there's a rise of uh, more intense global competition, um, which is putting some pressure on business. There's also Nader's Raiders and the rise of things like OSHA. What is it that's making business feel so besieged at this point? Um, the mainly uh, in the 19. Remember, we're talking about the late 60s, early 1970s. So you you, you have yes, you have regulations, uh, and you have the Environmental Protection Agency in 1970. You've got uh, Jimmy Carter, who was president in 1976. Before then, uh, you had uh, basically just the, these groups that um, began forming in part in reaction to the Nixon administration of, uh, of 1968. Um, there was a lot of... A little ironic in retrospect. Well, it's, it is ironic, but it's particularly ironic because the consumer groups uh, and the environmental groups, although they were making some legislative headway, uh, they, were, they were making very minor headway, uh, even by the time Jimmy Carter got in the office uh, in 1976. Remember, between 1968... Uh, and 1976, we had Republicans. I mean, we had Richard Nixon and Gerald Ford. By the time Jimmy Carter became president in 1976, uh, these groups, these environmental groups and these uh, uh, consumer groups um, were still very minor players in Washington. Labor was also declining uh, quite rapidly in its power. Uh, and was nowhere near as as significant a voice as it had been 10 or 15 or 20 years before. So the great irony is in the 1970s, you've got all these business groups uh, that are starting to pour a lot of money into Washington to be represented, to get a voice. And of course, the lobbying and the lobbying groups themselves in Washington saw an, an enormous opportunity to make a lot of money by going to individual companies and saying, well, wait a minute, your competitors are now here. They've got an office. They're lobbying like mad. Uh, don't you want to sign up with us? Because uh, you have to be represented as well. Uh, and by the end of the 70s, beginning of the 80s, we really had a whole um, 
uh, structure of moneyed interests in Washington uh, doing the bidding of, by that time, it was the Reagan administration. I feel like one related takeaway that I had from your film is that one really can't overstate super rich people's persecution complexes as a motivator for their political actions. You have a there's a, a segment where you have dinner with some very rich conservatives. And what really stuck out was just how how defensive they were and how besieged they felt. What did tell me about the dinner and what you what you made of it? I was surprised, frankly. Um, uh, many of these people. This was in Cincinnati, Ohio. These were people who were not big Washington donors, and they were certainly not CEOs of major American companies. I think they would have been less defensive had they been. But these were middle-sized companies in Middle America, in Red America. Uh, they were Republicans, every one of them, uh, and they did feel defensive. They felt that somehow. I and Democrats and progressives uh, were belittling them and demeaning them and blaming them for everything. Uh, and I tried to make clear to them that they were not the problem, at least in my mind, and anybody who was thoughtfully looking at the economy would not say that they were the problem. The problem comes in the abuse of wealth, the abuse of power uh, that many wealthy people uh, have been guilty of in terms of turning their money into political action to enhance their wealth. Uh, the same thing with big companies. Uh, it was that behavior that undermined our democracy, that behavior that was a kind of a, a self-fulfilling, a vicious cycle that generated bigger and bigger returns to those investors. And you call them investors because they are investors. Very wealthy people and big companies are investing in politics to get big returns as they have got in terms of tax cuts and everything else. I should correct myself. These people weren't super rich, but they were, you know, more regular rich. And but they still had Obama's you didn't build that still sort of ringing in their heads, it seemed. Uh, yes, uh, they were very much um, kind of they felt besieged. I guess that's the word. Um, and um, one of them around the table even said to me that uh, that I made her feel ashamed of herself, that I made her feel bad about herself. And she was angry about that because she felt that there was no reason for her to be bad, feel bad about herself. And again, it was a miscommunication uh, because uh, there was nothing that I had ever said or written that was a direct attack on certainly anybody at the table, but also anybody for being wealthy or any CEO for being a CEO. I mean, what I've said and what we say in the movie is that these people – only a few of them really are guilty of misusing their wealth and abusing their power by undermining our political system. You tell the story in part through an autobiographical lens, including your time in the Clinton administration. You had an extraordinarily close and longstanding personal relationship with the Clintons, and you served, of course, as President Clinton's Secretary of Labor. What was your hope for what might be accomplished at the outset in 93, and what actually happened? Bill Clinton campaigned on a slogan called putting people first. And what that meant in more detail, because he put out a very, he put out a booklet, and I helped write it. 
was investing in America's people, America's workers. That is investing in their education, uh, making them more productive, investing in their job training, uh, making it easier for them to move from job to job if they lost a job, Uh, investing in their health care. Uh, so they could be more productive members of society, would not be laid up with chronic illnesses, heart disease, diabetes. Uh, Also investing in infrastructure, the roads, bridges, public transportation systems, water and sewer systems that just enabled them to uh, be productive and connect up with other, other people. Uh, and also investing in basic research and development, which percolated upward in terms of skills and understandings. Uh, those investments uh, Bill Clinton pledged to make, but when we took over in 1993, uh, we discovered uh, that there was a huge budget deficit that was left over from the George H.W. Uh, administration. And Uh, We didn't know about it, and a lot of Wall Street was very concerned about that budget deficit and said, in effect, look, you guys can't spend the money that you expected to spend on public investment because we've got a big budget deficit. And that that really was the the kind of uh, debate and tension inside the White House, inside the administration uh, from almost the beginning. There were circumstances, but there were also – some ideological differences at play between you and sort of the administration center of gravity. He was coming out of the DLC from the the get-go. I anticipate that you expected to have some differences with the Bob Rubens of the administration. Uh, yes, I expected to have some differences with with uh, people who represent Wall Street. Obviously, I'm, particularly <laughs> I'm Secretary of Labor. I mean, there were going to be natural kind of uh, structural differences. Regardless of ideology, you're just coming from different places uh, and representing different uh, – I say representing. I mean uh, thinking about and viewing the economy sure. and viewing public policy from different perspectives. Uh, the Democratic Leadership Committee, the DLC, the New Democrats, uh, they were not at the start of the administration really a major force. And to the extent that they influenced Bill Clinton, it was you know they they adopted the same litany of public investment. They were very much in favor of public investment. Uh, so it wasn't uh, it wasn't that was not the problem. The problem really at the start was both economically and to some extent ideologically, the Wall Streeters and Bob Rubin is a good example uh, did not want those that degree of public investment. Really thought that the budget deficit and getting the budget deficit down was much more urgent and important for the economy. At the time that you left, you said that it was to spend more time with your family, and I don't doubt that you did. That job must have been incredibly uh, time-consuming, but. Did the rightward direction that the Clinton administration ultimately took, did that play a role in your decision to leave? You know, at the time, um, it, it you know, in retrospect, it must have. At the time, I, I really was thinking mostly about my family. I, I think that um, I had been there five years. I had done everything I could. I was running into, beginning running to run into real stone walls. Uh, there were kind of diminishing returns on my being there any longer. And I was missing my family. I had two young boys at home, and I would miss their teenage years if I didn't, um, if I didn't pay attention to them. And can you go over some of the key policy differences that you had inside the cabinet? One that you detail in the film is a argument um, with you on one side and Ruben on the other over a tax break for CEO pay? That was one of them, uh, and that was very early on. Uh, 
Bill Clinton had pledged during the campaign to eliminate a deduction by that companies could take from their corporate income taxes of CEO pay in excess of a million dollars. Now that seemed pretty reasonable. Um, at that time, CEO pay was uh, was not really much more than a million dollars. And Bill Clinton said, "Why should the public, in effect, subsidize CEO pay in excess of a million dollars?" Well. Uh, Bob Rubin and uh, the late Lloyd Benson, who was then Secretary of the Treasury, they had a different view. Uh, they couldn't buck what the president had pledged, but they could uh, they could derail it a little bit by saying, in effect, and this was the rule that went into place, this was the Treasury regulation still on the books, uh, that companies can deduct CEO pay over a million dollars as long as that pay is connected to performance that is stocks and that was the beginning of this huge increase in stock options and stock grants that went to CEOs and today make up a big portion of their compensation packages uh, before that we didn't have them and Rubin and uh, and Lloyd Banson were really in the lead on that uh, that loophole let's call it a loophole uh, there were other um, uh, concerns along the way ultimately uh, and I wasn't there for this decision uh, but ultimately, Bob Rubin and others from Wall Street convinced Bill Clinton to uh, repeal uh, the Glass-Steagall Act, which was um, a 1930s law that separated commercial from investment banking. Um, and also, they convinced uh, Bill Clinton to not pay any attention to Brooksley Bourne, who was then uh, the director of the Commodity Future Trading Commission, when she went to Bill Clinton and said, look, we've got to regulate derivatives, these fancy Wall Street instruments that can very easily, looks like they're getting out of control. Wall Street doesn't even understand the risks they're taking on. We've got to actually uh, regulate. And uh, the Wall Street crowd in the White House persuaded him not to. Uh, I was out of the administration then. I was making my voice known through kind of uh, informal circles, let's put it that way. Uh, but those were the two bookmarks, the bookends, uh, for a continuous series of skirmishes that I had. I, but let me just add that I didn't take this personally, and I don't think Bob Rubin or the other Wall Streeters in the administration did. That is, I like them. They, I think, like me. We went out to dinner together. We were, we were friends. But we had very tough fights over these issues. There's a really interesting clip from the film. I'm not quite sure when it's from, but I think it's from the late 90s. You're really one of a rare figure in the administration that really has a laser focus on the worsening situation for working class Americans and growing inequality. And there's a speech. I'm not sure if it's before while you're in the administration or after you're out. But you talk about how growing inequality and, and the worsening situation for working people is basically building a political constituency for a sort of scapegoating right-wing politics. My friends, we are on the way to becoming a two-tiered society, composed of a few winners and a larger group of Americans left behind, whose anger and whose disillusionment is easily manipulated. Once unbottled, Mass resentment can poison the very fabric of society, the moral integrity of a society. 
replacing ambition with envy, replacing tolerance with hate. Today, the targets of those raids, that rage, are immigrants and welfare mothers and government officials and gays and an ill-defined counterculture. But as the middle class continues to erode, who will be the targets tomorrow? It was a talk I gave, a speech I gave toward the end of my um, uh, being in the administration. Uh, and I did warn that if we continued on the road toward greater and greater inequality of income and wealth and political power, uh, we were going to create a very fertile ground for a demagogue to come along uh, and organize people around the politics of resentment uh, and direct that resentment toward immigrants and uh, toward uh, elites, uh, particularly educated elites, toward uh, African Americans. Uh, and then I said, and there will be others as well. Um, when if inequality gets out of control, uh, a demagogue will come along uh, to make political hay out of people's feelings that the the system is rigged. Um, I had forgot completely about that speech until um, uh, Jake Kornbluth, who's directing, who, who's the director of this film, uh, found oh, it, wow. and I saw it, and and it just blew me away. I, I mean, it it made me so sad. It's prescient. Well, it made me sad. I, I, I was sad because so much of what I had foreseen then in 19, I guess it was about 1995, 1996, um, 20 years later comes to fruition in the form of Donald Trump. I don't know if you'd phrase it this way, but to me, it's long seemed pretty clear that Clintonism did play a key role in helping delay the groundwork for Trumpism. And even in the 1990s, there was a politics emerging that would coalesce into the Trump coalition in some sense, namely in the candidacies of Pat Buchanan and Ross Perot. What did you make of them at the time? And how did people inside the administration view those twin insurgencies? Well, they didn't view them in any way as I think they should have which was part of the reason I, I, I made the speech, uh, because I saw a relationship between Ross Perot and Pat Buchanan. Uh, the administration, by and large, viewed Ross Perot as a challenge to what uh, Bill Clinton wanted to do uh, on international trade, particularly NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Act. Uh, and uh, Al Gore, in a very uh, public way, uh, debated Ross Perot and uh, and said that NAFTA would be good for America and Ross Perot said it would be it would be terrible it would be a giant sucking sound of jobs going to Mexico um, and then of course in in 1996 uh, Pat Buchanan ran uh, on a very negative harsh authoritarian populist platform similar uh, kind of foreshadowing Donald Trump uh, and. Yeah. Uh, uh, and a lot of the themes that Trump used in this past election were actually uh, planted by Ross Perot and by and by Pat Buchanan. Uh, but to the administration, uh, they they just didn't seem uh, it, the administration by the administration. I mean Bill Clinton and a lot of the people directly around him didn't see the threat. Um, and I think had they seen it. Um, 
I like to think they would have paid more attention to widening inequality. They would have paid more attention to the importance of investing, actually fulfilling the original Clinton uh, campaign pledge of of investing a great deal in education and job training and and healthcare and making people more productive uh, and able to have a have a louder voice. Um, and they also would have done more to get big money out of politics. One of the most distressing things to me about these years was watching the Democratic Party, uh, and it wasn't just Bill Clinton. I mean, this has been going on since the 80s. The Democratic Party succumbed to the same fundraising madness as the Republican Party, fundraising from uh, the elites, from big, big money, from not only wealthy individuals, but also Wall Street and big corporations. Uh, that um, would, in my view, and did inevitably undermine the integrity uh, of the party, the ability of the party to stand up to wealthy elites, to stand up to big corporations and say, uh, no, we're not going to go in that direction. We are actually going to be working um, for the well-being of average working people. It wasn't just Clinton's Wall Street and labor policies, I think, that helped lay the groundwork for right-wing populism, not just Clinton's, but, you know, many other political actors obviously play a role. But um, but also Clinton's triangulation on issues like crime and immigration and welfare reform. And welfare reform is also, of course, a labor policy of sorts, unfortunately. How should we, in your opinion, make sense of Clinton's economic, neoliberal economic program on the one hand, and these sort of issues that played towards I guess, white identity politics on the other. Uh, well, remember, um, the the big trauma for Bill Clinton as president was the loss in November of 1994 of both the House and the Senate to the Republicans. Uh, and Newt Gingrich in particular, who had campaigned on a contract with America, as he called it, uh, but basically was stoking the flames of uh, divisiveness in America uh, was playing upon the same sort of uh, politics that Ronald Reagan had started when he when he talked about Ronald Reagan was the one who brought up uh, welfare queens, uh, but uh, but that that ugliness that that ugly side of politics that divisiveness uh, really came to a head. Uh, with the uh, Republican wins in that uh, midterm election of, of 1994. Bill Clinton thereafter felt that he needed to move to the center. He brought in uh, Dick Morris as his key advisor. Oh, God. <laughs> uh, and Dick Morris told Bill Clinton in no uncertain terms that if Bill Clinton wanted to win, win re-election in 1996, uh, Clinton had to move to the center, had to... Uh, uh, on on guns, on crime, on welfare, on all these things, uh, in order to co-opt this rising Republican tide. Uh, I had a lot of debates personally with with Dick Morris. Um, you know, I'd say uh, if 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 we're going to go in that direction, what's the what's the whole purpose of being in power? And Dick Morris would say back, but. If you don't go in that direction, you're not going to be even be, be in power. You're you're not going to even have the opportunity to do anything else. And we went round and around and around on that. Um, but looking back on it, I think that the real failure or a real failing of the Clinton administration also had to do with organized labor, because uh, organized labor was, as I said, already shrinking 
as a percentage of the American workforce. Uh, you know, in the 50s and 60s, over a third of American workers in the private sector belonged to a union. And that was such a large percentage that even the non-unionized segment of the workforce got the advantages from union contracts because the employers who were non-union employers said, well, if we don't go along with the major union contracts, we're going to be unionized next. Uh, and so those union workers and those uh, contracts set prevailing wages, prevailing benefits for the economy as a whole. By the time of the 1990s, union membership had declined, not nearly as, as far as it had today, but it was on the wane. And Bill Clinton, during his campaign, promised the unions, as years later did Barack Obama, that uh, he would fight for labor law reform. And by that he meant making it easier for unions to organize, making it harder for employers to fire workers for trying to organize unions. Uh, this is something that beginning in the 80s uh, under Ronald Reagan, more and more employers started to do, felt that they had permission to do, uh, to be to bust unions. Uh, Bill Clinton uh, promised the unions he would reverse that. But when it came time to actually put labor law reform in place, uh, Clinton didn't want to spend the political capital, uh, and neither did Barack Obama. I mean, by the time of uh, Barack Obama's election, obviously uh, unions were smaller, uh, but he had made in 2007 the same promise to labor unions, uh, you know, that he would fight for labor law reform, and he made the same decision that Bill Clinton did um, uh, years before. Uh, once Barack Obama was in power uh, in 2008, he said, uh, actually the start of 2009, he said, no, I, I'm not going to really do that. I don't want to spend that political capital. The 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 irony and and the the, the tragedy here is that both. Bill Clinton and Barack Obama had two years, those first two years, both administrations, when they had Democratic Congresses, Democrats running both the House and the Senate, they could have passed labor law reform. Uh, and if they had, it would have helped uh, because labor unions were a major vehicle for giving bargaining power to American workers to get a fair share of the gains from economic growth. Uh, and they were also, incidentally, important to the Democratic Party as the ground troops of the Democratic Party. The ideological orientation of working class people, union membership, makes a person who's demographically identical more likely to vote Democratic. And that I think that's such an important point you made because it's not only bad policy in terms of like the ethics and morality of what's going on, but just astoundingly bad and short-sighted politics to sit back and allow for the decimation of the very source, one of the just basic sources of their party's political power. And what happened to many of those blue-collar workers uh, whose wages had stagnated or declined for years, who felt that they didn't have a union, they didn't have a voice, they voted for Donald Trump in 2016. That's, again, one of the tragic aspects of all of this. You know, um, had people thought through, uh, had Democrats thought through the future, uh, and I'm uh, just as guilty. I mean, yes, I, I was on the, the so-called left end of the Clinton administration, and I have before and since uh, been fighting these fights, but I should have fought harder. I, I, 
I think in retrospect uh, that I didn't do as much as I could have done. Yeah, you mentioned that in the the film. What do you think you could have done differently or more aggressively? Uh, well, look, there's always a question of how aggressive you can be uh, in an organization, whether that organization is a company or a, or a university or a union or, in my case, in that era, the government and the cabinet. How aggressive you can be without people starting to roll their eyes and not listen to you anymore <laughs> and just sort of marginalize you. Um, there goes Bob. <laughs> well, yes, and that is a danger. I mean, if somebody is trying to be an advocate inside a inside inside an institution, um, you, you know, you're, you're, you run the danger of being marginalized and not heard any longer. But I think, again, in retrospect, I could have been more aggressive. Uh, I, I was I was in danger of being marginalized. Some would say I already had been marginalized, but I still could have been tougher. I, I might have been able to organize inside and outside more effectively. So there's this sort of shrunken horizon of possibilities over the 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, this sense of the inevitability of the status quo. But as we now know at this point, uh, there was some really serious populist anger about to burst forth. You make a point, a very important point in the film, I think, that there, that populism is not just one thing. It's often caricatured as this homogenous mass, but there are two very different ways that it can go. Can you, can you lay out your, your analysis of populism? Well, there are two. I mean, if you say that populism is a lot of, a lot of anger against a rigged system, a system being rigged by big money, we saw in 2016 the two faces of populism. There was Donald Trump, uh, his kind of uh, strongman, authoritarian, uh, scapegoating of others, populism. Uh, but then there was also Bernie Sanders, uh, who was uh, on nobody's radar screen at the start of 2015. I mean, nobody expected that a... Uh, you know, a 73-year-old uh, Jewish independent, he wasn't even a Democrat, from Vermont, uh, born in Brooklyn, would be able to <laughs> take more than 20 states uh, in a Democratic primary against Hillary Clinton, uh, who was the heir apparent. Uh, this was astounding uh, to politicians and to the Washington establishment. Uh, but Bernie Sanders did represent the other face of populism, progressive populism. Uh, in which uh, Sanders called for a political revolution. Uh, he didn't depend on big money. Uh, he depended on small contributions. Uh, and he organized and mobilized the largest uh, insurgent uh, campaign uh, that we've seen really in modern years. Uh, those people have not disappeared. I mean, those people are still there. They're still organizing. They're still fulminating. Uh, so we still have in this country both authoritarian populism, uh, and that those are Trump supporters, primarily. Uh, and we have uh, progressive populism, um, uh, Bernie Sanders supporters, and others maybe who didn't support Bernie Sanders, but who could easily now, now that we have and we live in an era of Trump, uh, join in because they can see so clearly, I hope, uh, how the failure to get big money out of politics, the failure to improve uh, the uh, the lives of of so many people who are caught in dead end jobs in in stagnant wages in less and less economic security uh, why the alternative if you don't give them possibilities is uh, demagoguery. I mean it's not just Donald Trump after Trump there will be demagogues as far as the eye can see if we don't 
uh, if we don't reform the system. I know you have to go in a minute, but I have one other question that I am obligated to ask as the host of a socialist podcast, which is, why save capitalism? Uh, well, I chose the title because <laughs> I thought it would be provocative. I, you know, half of the country when I was when I was touring would say, uh, "Why are you critical of capitalism? You know, saving capitalism. It sounds like you don't you think capitalism uh, really is in trouble." Uh, and then the other half of the country, uh, particularly in California and New York, when I'd say saving capitalism, they'd say, "Well, why save capitalism? I mean, it's, <laughs> it's not worth saving." Uh, I, I think the what I really want people to focus on is not the ism. What they really need to focus on is who has the power to control the economic system, whether you call it a banana or capitalism or socialism, uh, who has the power to make the rules of that system. Uh, and unless you've got a robust democracy that is really working and giving average people and working people and poor people uh, an adequate voice uh, then you are in trouble. Then the power is going to go to the top, to people with a lot of money, which creates that kind of self-fulfilling, vicious cycle I talked about, where more and more money creates changes in politics and in laws and regulations that generates even more winnings for the top. Secretary Reich, thank you so much. Well, thank you. Robert Reich is a former U.S. Secretary of Labor and Chancellor's Professor of Public Policy at the University of California at Berkeley. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once exclaimed while owning Robert Rubin, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week, usually twice a week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky, postmaster generaling from Christian Bow. Find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. Also, tell your friends about the show. Maybe they'd like it. Tell strangers about it as well. You can do so on social media or on iTunes with a review. And please find us on patreon.com slash the dig and make a donation. Whatever you can give really does help. Help.